from Kurtco Media. Travel It Matters MasterChef series is brought to you by Accor, a world-leading hospitality group. And brought to you by Stone Street Estate Vineyards in Sonoma County, California. Coming up on the show. It was just the perfect neighborhood spot. You know when you find that spot that just nails it? The crowd is local, the service is super low-key, and the menu just exceeds expectations. And it is so much more than the sum of its parts. That's Top Chef Judge Gail Simmons. I'm Bruce Wallen, and this is the Travel That Matters MasterChef Series. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Travel That Matters MasterChef series, where we are talking to some of the world's top chefs about their favorite places for food and travel. First, for those of you who are new to Travel That Matters, I'm Bruce Wallen. I'm a magazine editor and travel journalist. And on this show, we explore the world's most exceptional and meaningful travel experiences with some of the fascinating people I have met through my work and travels. I am extremely excited today to welcome a very special guest. She's technically not a chef, and, and she made sure to point that out to me when uh, we asked her to be on the Master Chef series, but she is unquestionably one of the most important and influential people in the culinary world today. I am talking, of course, about Gail Simmons, who we all know as a host and judge of the Emmy Award-winning Bravo show Top Chef Top Chef is now in its 20th season, by the way, and Gail has been there for the entire journey. She's also hosted and appeared on you know many, many other TV shows. She's written two books. She's a global ambassador for children in conflict and so many other things, including being a former editor at Food and Wine magazine. When I was speaking with Gail, I felt like we just had a lot in common. I'm not, I'm not sure if the feeling was mutual. Maybe she's just, you know, she's just one of those people who's super easy to relate to. But we both came out of magazine publishing. We've had a lot of similar travel experiences and influences along the way. In my chat with Gail, we talk about Top Chef, of course, but we also dive into some of those incredible travel experiences that she's had and how they've helped her develop the kind of global perspective that's necessary to be a judge on a show like Top Chef. I promise you, you will learn some things about Gail that you probably did not know, including that she's an avid safari goer, and that she lived on a kibbutz in Israel. Speaking of Israel, you have to stick around after my interview with Gail as I am joined by an Israeli legend, Chef Uri Jeremias. I met Uri at his Uri Burry restaurant in the coastal city of Akko, where he also owns a beautiful hotel called the Effendi, by the way. Uri talks with us about some of his favorite spots in Israel, plus his thoughts on what has been a hot topic in culinary circles lately, and that is Israeli cuisine. Also, don't forget to follow Travel That Matters wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, let's go on a culinary adventure with Gail Simmons. Gail. Thank you so much for joining us today on Travel That Matters. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to talk to you, Bruce. So we'll start with Top Chef. I know that's not very original, but I want to ask you about the current season. It is, as we all know, you know, top international winners from the various international shows competing against each other in like this global stage. 
you know, you're you're in a situation as a judge where you have to compare a, a Thai chef cooking a Thai dish maybe with a with a Jordanian chef cooking something from the Middle East. Like, how does that work? What do, what's required from you? You know, it's a little more sort of holistic than that. I can't speak to all cooking shows because they are all very different and the criteria is different and our show works a very specific way. But there's always a through line to the challenges we give our chefs, right? They're not arbitrary. We don't just say cook whatever you want and then we'll judge them against each other with no context. There's always context. There's always a through line in the story that they're telling, in the reason that they are making what they're making, in the location we're in, a connection to the judge who's there with us that day, the the guest judge. And so we are comparing them, although they are all very different dishes, obviously anyone who creates anything side by side with anyone else, it's going to be different. It's art. It is spontaneous and it is based on every individual's vision and talent and skill. And But because we've given them as fair a playing field as possible in terms of the criteria, we're always judging them based on a certain set of things. That's not to say that it's a perfect science of you get five points for this and three points for this and the person who gets the most points wins. It doesn't work like that either. There's definitely a touchy-feely element to our judging system. And it changes from challenge to challenge. But the most important two things that we are always looking for is did they succeed in completing the challenge that was given to them? For example, make a dish for a elevated fine dining British picnic outdoors at Highclere Castle. Were they successful in that, in executing on that challenge? And then, was it delicious? And those are very general things that, you know, are easy to judge so that you can judge them against each other. They don't have to be alike, and they don't have to be exactly the same to understand if they were successful at what they did, right? You know, I hadn't even thought about that, but you remind me of when I was at Rob Report for many years, we did an annual car of the year competition. And people, you know, we would be comparing a Ferrari versus a Bentley versus a, you know, whatever else, completely different cars. But, you know, the approach was kind of like what car is doing the best job of what its purpose is, right? So, you know, how do you compare a Bentley versus Ferrari? You can't, but you can compare like who is doing the absolute best with what they've, they're striving for. Same thing, exactly. With, the food, with the chefs, it does require a global perspective. You have to understand various dishes. I'm sure, obviously, you're hosting the show, but to be able to experience the that type of variety, that type of different creative influences and traditions and whatnot all in one place is an incredible opportunity. However, something that's obviously been complemented by a fair amount of travel as well. You know, in a kitchen, you have to be de- out and about as well. I know you've done a lot of travel over the years. Yeah. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> including, well, good. You're in, you're in the right place here then. Including you actually worked on a kibbutz in Israel after college. Can you, can you just tell us, first of all, what, you know, what was your job on that kibbutz? And then what, what was that experience like for you? It wasn't actually after college. It was after high school. I was 18. I had just turned 18. And I went to Israel for the summer between high school and college. Oh. It was not my first time in Israel, actually. It was my second time in Israel. I had been there when I was 16 with my family, fell completely in love with it for a lot of reasons, and wanted to work, wanted to get my hands dirty, wanted to do something physical outdoors in the summer. And the kibbutz ideal, um, at least as it was, now this is going back many years, let's just say. You know, it was the 90s. And so uh, it seemed like the perfect way to do all of those things and get some travel in and have like a great adventure before I started college. 
So I ended up on a kibbutz called Beta Emek, which is, I don't even know if it's still around, I think it is, very close to the Lebanese border near a town called Nahariya. When I first got there, I was with my high school boyfriend at the time. They put us in the chicken coop, in the lol, as it's called in Hebrew. I started in the lol, and my job was not to kill chickens. My job was to pick eggs five times a day. We woke up with the sun because that's when the chickens woke up. And it was hard, hard work. Also taking care of the chickens, obviously feeding them and caring for them, making sure that they were getting the veterinarian help if they needed it. And then they assigned me to work in the avocado fields. Our kibbutz had lychee and avocado fields. So I was fixing the irrigation system on the avocado trees. And then they moved me to the kitchen. And it really was my first ever kitchen job. It was the first of a lifetime of kitchen jobs. But my very first job was in the dishwashing pit. I washed dishes for eight hours a day for a couple weeks. And then they slowly moved me into the kitchen and I became the egg cook for the breakfast shift. And that was sort of a full circle moment because all of a sudden I was cooking the eggs that I had been picking earlier. And I so hated those chickens and I was so angry at them that for a while I couldn't eat any eggs or even look at eggs. But by the time I finished working in the kitchen, it was sort of my revenge, like (laughs) cooking all those eggs. Obviously, it pointed you in a direction that you didn't anticipate. But I mean, one of the things that like I was in Israel a few months ago, actually. And ah. one of the, I mean, there were a lot of surprises around every corner in that country, yes. for sure. Yes. In every way, shape, and form. But one of the things that I was very surprised by were the kibbutzes. Like, I had my ignorance, I had in my mind, like an Amish, like farm type of setting. And I, we actually, like, we went wine tasting at a couple of oh, beautiful yeah. kibbutzes. So there was this super cool, like, brewery and restaurant mm-hmm. at, at one of the kibbutz actually up near the Lebanese border, probably close to to where you were. And, and so I think like the kibbutz is so varied, the whole experience of a kibbutz. It has certainly evolved. I mean, the idea of kibbutz is really a socialist ideal, right? That was created in the 40s when Israel founded its independence and became an independent state. And it was basically a desert, And it needed to be farmed. And these agricultural communities formed all over the country to till the land, to create agricultural industry. And what they found was actually a a country that was incredibly verdant. And there was a lot of innovation, a lot of technology that happened in Israel that allowed them to do that. And so there is agricultural industry on every level. I mean, the idea of kibbutz also was that everyone, it was a a commune in a lot of ways, right? Everyone shared everything. It didn't matter if you were the doctor or the teacher for the children on that kibbutz or a farm worker, you pooled your resources, you worked together for that common goal. And that has certainly evolved. And there have been dark moments in the idea of a kibbutz, right? Because it hasn't always worked economically for the country. And there's always a point where you maybe don't want to be socialist in that everyone isn't always doing the same job or the same amount of work. And sometimes people should be paid accordingly. So there's highs and lows to a kibbutz, but what has happened now, especially in the world of food, is that there really has been, especially in Israel, an explosion in in the food industry, in agriculture, in quality and access to the incredible ingredients that grow on that land, coupled with a boom in technology and innovation in the country that have allowed it to really be at like the forefront of agriculture. And there's so much exciting stuff happening. It's a very 
fascinating country to be in right now. It's very small and very strong in its agricultural resources. Well, I, a small, yes. And that, that's one of the great things about Israel too. As a traveler, you can, I mean, I was there for nine days and I saw a lot. I mean, I was yeah. able to go to many different places because it's all, it's accessible. But you mentioned the tie to the food, right? The, the kind of progression from this focus on agriculture to how that's reflected in the food. And today, Israel is absolutely one of the most, you know, talked about exciting food destinations in the world. The food is incredible in Tel Aviv and it beyond, is. you know, all over. And a lot of Israeli chefs are, are making a huge impact in New York, Philadelphia, Paris. I saw, Oh, you know, absolutely. I know. When I was in Paris, just shooting Top Chef in the fall, I did some amazing Israeli restaurants all over the world. And I mean, look, the, the, the idea of Israeli cuisine is always changing and evolving. Obviously, Israeli cuisine pulls from influences all over the world too, right? The history of Israel is the history of the Levant. And it calls from all of those Middle Eastern countries and the immigration patterns of the people who came from all of those countries and also from Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, and North Africa, and of course, Middle East Asia, like this, you know, it is such an, a complex food culture. And it all has sort of found this amazing web in Israel and a place to really showcase that diversity. Wandering a spice market in Israel is a true, a true treat for, for any traveler, for sure. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Gail Simmons. Obviously, Israel had a major impact on you because it helped set off a career, but what's another destination that's really kind of influenced you, it impacted you, impacted the way you cook at home, just left that impression that, that you fell in love with? I would say Australia is another country. I, I just got back from Australia, so it's obviously top of mind, but it wasn't my first trip. My entire family immigrated there. My father is South African, and South Africa is another fascinating food culture. My father grew up in South Africa. He immigrated to Canada where he met my mother and had me, you know, he moved in the 60s. His whole family was in South Africa until the 90s. And when his parents passed away, his brothers and their families immigrated to Australia. And there's a big South African population actually in Sydney and, and in Australia in general. And so I've spent two very sort of impactful visits to Australia that really made an impression on me. One was when I was 19. So the summer I was 18, I went to Israel. The summer I was 19, after my freshman year of college, I went to Australia with my best friend for three months. And we traveled the country bottom to top and then over to New Zealand. And we were there for several months. And then I went back to school. And then I hadn't been back until March, this past March. So much had changed. But my memory of the excitement of the food in Australia remained the same, if not just seeing the explosion since my last visit was really amazing. The food the aesthetic, the care, and also the interesting history of indigenous food in Australia, and also how they are in a unique position to the rest of the world, and how they see the rest of the world, because they're in a lot of ways so isolated from the rest of the world, so far from everyone, but somehow have managed to really innovate and create their own food culture that I would say is at the forefront in the world and is a really one of the most exciting places to eat right now for their ingredients, for their access to the sea and the land and the very unique species that only exist in this one sort of magical, mystical place. But there's so much, I mean, Melbourne is 
I don't know, as a food city, it really is sort of like the Paris of that continent. You know, there's the food scene there is just so much fun. And and in general, I found in Australia both visits, but I really, as an adult, when I went back this year, felt just a vibrancy and like a joyfulness to the country in terms of its food. Everybody is invested and it just sort of feels like a party everywhere you go, every restaurant you're in, every bar. You know, breakfast is like taken very seriously in the best way, right? No one just messes around with breakfast. You make it beautiful. It is delicious. You are sitting on the ocean with like the most beautiful setting. It's just awesome. Is there a place in Melbourne that you, like one restaurant or or two that you have to go to? I had a lot of great meals in Melbourne, but two that really stood out were a place called Aru, which is a Thai chef who is really doing his own very beautiful, very modern take on food that touches, you know, indigenous ingredients in Australia, but with a lot of Thai influence. And another restaurant that was one of our, I went with my father, first of all, I was alone with my father for 10 days. Haven't had a chance to travel with my father since I was probably 22. I'm about to take a trip with my 22 year old and I'm hoping it's not the last one. And it won't be, it won't be. I mean, I've traveled a lot with my father since I was 22, just not alone one-on-one. We used to take a lot of trips alone together to South Africa many times Etc. But we, you know, then I moved to New York, went to culinary school, I started working. We went on family trips, but we just hadn't had a chance until this trip to just steal 10 days alone together and travel. And we went to a restaurant in Melbourne called Cumulus, and it was great. It was just the perfect neighborhood spot. You know when you find that spot that just nails it? The crowd is local, the service is super low-key, and the menu just exceeds expectations. Everything in Australia kind of feels that way. They don't overthink the service. The descriptions on the menus are sort of simple and straightforward. And then you get it, and it is so much more than the sum of its parts. That's the best. When you, f- you discover a place like that, and you d- you, your expectations are not preset from yes. weeks of anticipation. And, right. and it's just, it blows you away. That's the absolute best. I want to change course there, actually. You talked about traveling with your father solo. And that's something I've made a point to do with all, I have three kids and with each of them, I've taken them on trips, you know, just the two of us. And I I think those have been some of the greatest, you know, trips we've done because it is an opportunity and, you know, and they're, they're young for a short period of time. And, and like, it was just an amazing way to bond with them. And then also like, we will always have those memories. So, always. you know, you mentioned traveling with your father. Is that something you do with your kids or plan to do with your kids? And and how do you like to travel as a family? So my kids are still small. My son is five, about to turn five, and my daughter's nine. And they've done a lot of travel. We as a family have been lucky because of Top Chef and my work, but also because my husband is also a, a travel addict. And there's nothing he loves more than digging into planning our next trip. And so we've done a lot of travel as a family A little bit solo with our daughter. Our son is still sort of young, so he's done a lot of travel, but he's still sort of coming along for the ride, just almost at the age where we can do trips that he will really remember and be able to be active. I mean, he does everything, but, you know, he's still little, so he can't fully understand and immerse himself in where he is. But it is absolutely how I plan to travel. I mean, I think about the trips I've done with my family, with my parents, you know, as a family, I have two older brothers and the five of us traveled so much because my parents were such great travelers. And my father being from South Africa, you know, had to get home to visit his family. So he would schlep all of us 
across the world to South Africa every few years growing up. And we all loved to travel. And then we all did our own independent travel and great family trips together, as well as solo travel with both of our parents. My trips with my father to South Africa, to Australia are so memorable, especially, I will say, now my father's 86 and he's incredibly spry and loves to travel. I mean, he will throw a backpack on his back and take off for four weeks across Europe like any day. That's his dream. He would rather sleep sort of like in a hostel and be able to, you know, work for his food. That's like his favorite kind of travel. He's just a great intrepid traveler. And I think of those times we've been able to spend together both when I was a child and now as an adult. It is so formative. It is so sort of sacred to our relationship. And those memories are incredible. So I can't wait for the day that we as a family can really start adventuring without the sort of worry of small children and the extra equipment that it requires. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to hear how Gail Simmons became a South African safari junkie. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes. I've raced the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness. And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland is full of these, I will call them ghosts of the past. From stampeding elephants to training sled dogs. We hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel publish every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen. South Africa, going there multiple times over the years. I assume you've done a lot of safari. Is that something that's special to you? It's the most special. I think it's the single most eye-opening, mind-blowing human experience that anyone can have. I went on my first trip to South Africa when I was five years old. And I have a few vivid memories from that trip. Some I know I only remember from the pictures I look at now. But other are more sort of feelings, flavors, murky moments that I remember, um, but I will never forget that we went to the Kruger National Park on that trip and almost every trip that I went to South Africa because a trip to South Africa for us kind of isn't complete without a few days in a park. It's really what makes that part of the world so unique. And, and it is this place where you really come to understand the balance of the earth. You know, you're the one in the cage looking at the wild beasts and how they're meant to be in their natural habitat and watching sort of survival of the fittest unfold in front of you. And then the, just the species that you only read about in storybooks or see at the zoo come to life is just something you can't even put into words. I can't wait to take my kids. Yeah, it, it's funny you said you were five because I, my youngest, we took her on safari when, when she was five. And, you know, admittedly, it was a little bit young, they, yeah. You know, she's not going to remember everything, but I'll, I'll tell you, A, A, she loved it. I mean, we we kind of brought her out of necessity because we were all going. We were bringing my mom 
Yeah, she was like she had to go, and and but I'll tell you, and it's a it's a haul from L.A. That's for sure mm-hmm. to get to Botswana. But a she loved it, and b like you said, like there's no question that she has real memories from yeah. that trip that will last. A lot of it will be through photographs, clearly, mm-hmm. but that is going to leave an impact. Just that complete change of perspective. My first memories are are from being in London when I was three years old, like my first memories as a human, because it was so different from what I was used to, right? Yes. And, and it's vague, of course, but I do think that, you know, five is a little young, but taking kids on safari is not a wasted experience at all. I agree. You know, I, yeah, I have little memories from them. The next time I went back, I was, I think, eight, and then 12. And then again, when I was 15, and then 2023. 20, Wow, so you're a real you're a real safari junkie. Then. Those were like my childhood trips to South Africa, and I just think that it's not only about putting yourself culturally in a place where you are the outsider, and you and that sort of process of discovery and that humbling experience of learning about a new place that is totally different than your own. But then going into the wilderness where the animals are in charge is sort of 2.0. It really it really makes you pause and think about our place in the world and the impact we leave as well on the earth. And I think those are just things that become more and more important as we, you know, set the world on fire, quite frankly. <laughs> quite frankly. Yes, no, that look, I mean, there's no question that going on safari leaves an imprint on anyone and it does motivate you to do more to protect not just African wildlife, but but just the world in yeah, general. the earth. So we learned something new. Gail Simmons, safari junkie. What about, let's go back to food real quick. I want one more destination. I know we talked about Australia, Israel. What's another place that you just love to go and eat? In that context, there's no question. I think the number one place in the world for me to go and eat is Japan. Tokyo specifically, but uh, the whole country. And I am like absolutely obsessed, as so many people are, for so many reasons. It's such a complex culture, so, so different than our own in every way. Miles, years, light years ahead of us in a lot of ways, but also steep, steep, steeped in thousands of years of tradition, unlike our own. And it's such a force as a country. And the food culture, I mean, superficially, is just mind-blowing. And they've just perfected the art of eating in Japan. It's an incredible experience. And again, talking about traveling with kids, it's not always the easiest place to eat. Like you're smelling things and tasting things that you've never heard, smelled and tasted before. So I think it does require some kind, you know, certainly an open mind, but I took my daughter there when she was 15, my oldest. That's probably a great age. Great age. Great age. She ate everything, the cornet fish, the the blowfish. I want to travel with your kids, Bruce. Tof- yeah, they sound amazing. That was great. But I, honestly, if she had been 11, I don't know. Like, I, I think yeah. it might have been a little too young. The thing about Japan is this. Having done a lot of research, I don't think it's a country, and certainly Tokyo as a city isn't a city you can just sort of like show up and, I mean, you can show up and just explore and wander and wander and you will you will find a thousand interesting things. But the city, I think, requires some deep digging and your experience will be so much richer to do that digging first and set yourself up to understand it. But there's so many ways to see Japan, that said. It's not just about the food. If you go with children, I have two of my closest friends who took kids to Japan this year from LA, and their kids are all under 12. And they went wild. 
but they weren't there on an eating trip necessarily. I mean, they ate well, but they weren't doing all of the just focusing on the food, right? But as a destination, actually with children, Japan, interesting place. Tokyo is such an interesting place. It's actually children have a lot more independence there. I mean, children from the age of three walk to school alone. I mean, you, your older brother puts your backpack on in the morning and you walk to school alone and your mom waves from your door and you walk <laughs> to the streets of Tokyo. And it it's just amazing. There is a whole TV show about it. <laughs> but th- And that's so interesting too. Like, how would my kids fare? I think about that all the time. But I can't wait to take them there when they are really able to appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, you know, a couple of things on that. For, we were about to go there this summer as well with my my now eleven year old. And I think she would have appreciated the the food of this. But you're right; it's so much more than the food. Obviously, yeah. it's it's all these experiences. But you you also brought up a great point of like that is one place where you want to do your research, and ideally, you you experience a lot of the stuff with someone who speaks Japanese because I, I remember there were like at least two meals. There was one meal where it was you know a tiny little bar in Kyoto where there was one chef and no one else. Like there's just a guy behind a bar and he just makes you every single dish and then he cleans it up and then he brings you another one. And I would have had no idea what I was eating the whole night if I hadn't been with someone who spoke. And so, you know, we Mm -hmm. had 15 different courses. Sure, it would have tasted great, but you don't have nearly the appreciation. But because I was there with someone who speaks fluent Japanese, I was able to understand what I was eating and why. Well, there's also so much sort of symbolism and etiquette that you would just never know and and practice culturally that you would never know to observe, to participate in if you don't have someone who's local to really experience it with you. I remember I was with a group. I was there for work in 2019 and we got in the car one day with my guide and he made me sit in the back seat behind the passenger seat. And that's where I had to sit. Every time I got in the car, I had to sit in that spot. And I finally asked, why does it matter if you sit here or I sit there? And he explained, well, in Japan, that is the safest seat to be sitting in in a car. And so as our guest of honor, we feel obligated to put you in that seat so that you are the most protected, God forbid, there were to ever be an accident. And I was like, that is so thoughtful. No one in America thinks to be that thoughtful. (laughs) Um, And that was sort of amazing. We also had an experience on my honeymoon. We were in Japan and we had gotten this big list of places from a number of chefs and friends who knew Tokyo to eat. And we made one, we decided we were going to make one like blowout reservation for a crazy sushi meal while we were there. That's where we were going to kind of pour all our honeymoon money in. And so through a friend who worked for Jean-Georges Van Grechten at the time, He'd gotten a list from Jean-Georges of his favorite sushi restaurants, sent it to us, and we had made a reservation at one of them. First of all, getting to the sushi restaurant was so hard. The taxi driver didn't know how to get there because Tokyo is such a maze of tiny streets. We had to get out of the cab and ask someone, and that person actually took our hand and walked us down, you know, folly to this door. And we opened up the door, slid open the door, and there is this single sushi counter with six seats. We ate 15 courses. The sake is coming. We have no one to really tell us what we're eating. We're the last people there except for two men at the end of the bar. And the chef turns to us, and I come to understand he's asking me, like, how did you get here? How did you ever know to find us, right? It's not a place where maybe there are a lot of tourists. I didn't know how to answer. Obviously, I don't speak Japanese. So I said, uh, Jean-Georges Van Gerichten, the chef in America, and he suggested this restaurant. And the sushi chef sort of shrugged and went back to what he was doing. 
But the guy at the end of the bar looked at me and said, you know Jean-Georges? I sell him all his fish. I work at the Tajiki fish market. I'm his importer. Like I talk to him on the phone every morning and I sell him all his fish. And he was like, oh, you want to go to the tuna market tomorrow? No problem. I'll take you. This is probably at about midnight that I'm having this conversation with him. He said, meet me outside at 5 a.m., five hours from now, and I'll make sure you get in. So I showed up and he zipped us through the fish market into the private auctions. And we spent the morning watching him in the auction buying fish for, you know, 15 shim all over the world. And that was like this experience that there was no way I could have ever had except in that exact moment in time. Wow. Well, that's actually a perfect example of why you need to do both, right? You need to plan. Yes. <laughs> and because you planned this meal and you picked this place, but then leave it open and, and you get an experience like that. That is incredible. So instead of Japan, I'm going to Thailand this year, this summer, where I've never been. And one of the reasons why I'm going is because I interviewed a Top Chef alum, Gregory Gorday, for the show recently. And he raves about Thailand, loves traveling through there and eating there. And so honestly, after talking to him, I was like, I got to go. I, I can't believe I've never been. So we're going to Thailand. And he's amazing, by the way. We're excited for his episode coming up. But are there chefs that you've worked with on the show or, or elsewhere that really have influenced, you know, you're like, okay, I have to go there now because this person told me to. All the time. I mean, there's so many, so many chefs who've come through our doors and gone on to create their own empire. Top Chef has created the most household names. There's something like 200 restaurants that have opened across America from chefs after being contestants on Top Chef. Many of them have multiple restaurants. And it is such a joy to see them in their own territory or take their suggestions. For example, Buddha, Buddha Lowe, who was the winner of our last season, our, our Houston season, is Australian. And so, of course, I went to him and he gave me his list of where he eats with his family whenever he's in Sydney and Melbourne. And that was so hugely helpful. I mean, I just ate through it. Gregory and I were just, funny that you mentioned, we were just texting last week because his sister is going to London for the summer with her kids and he wanted my kid London list from when I was with my shooting Top Chef this season. So it goes in circles, right? We all help each other, influence each other, and recommend to each other. Certainly, having been on Top Chef for so many years and being able to do the travel that we've done with the show has also influenced me so much. And now, this is the first year where the entire cast has been international, so it's not just about, you know, going to Charleston or going to Blinn to eat at a chef's restaurant or to travel to where they love. Now I have someone to visit in Jordan or in Brazil or in Mexico City. And I can't wait to go to those places and force them to be my tour guide. <laughs> that is an amazing way to experience places. And I, I'm definitely looking forward to someday uh, visiting Gregory's restaurants in Portland, after talking to him, it was it, it, another one to add to the list. With all, the, all those different influences, all the different places you've traveled, what is your go-to dish when you have dinner guests? It's the end of winter spring here in New York City, and we had pretty cold beginning of spring. Just the last week, the sun has come out, and right now all I want to do is roast artichokes and make asparagus salads all those vegetables that I haven't seen for so many months, or I want to turn on my grill, you know, grill seafood, you know, just simple food for my family that, that you have to do very little to, 
I love making sauces that are multi-use, right? Because I'm also like a mom and I'm working and I'm trying to please 15 people. So in my house, sort of the cooking philosophy is we make big batches, you know, through the winter that's like roasted vegetables and some sort of grain like a quinoa or brown rice or lentil. And then we can have a simple protein if we want or some nights none at all. And I have this sauce, right? A simple lemon and tahina sauce or a sauce that I've just blended in the blender with like olive oil and lemon juice and all of the herbs that are almost going bad at the back of my fridge and made this like simple green sauce. And then I can make those roasted vegetables and that's sort of like our home family meals. That sounds pretty good to me. If you came over, <laughs> I'd, I'd make it a little fancier, Bruce. I, I, I like the not fan. I like the, the artichokes and the asparagus salad and the little fish on the grill. That sounds perfect to me with yeah. some, with some homemade sauce. That's what I would make tonight if you came <laughs> over. All right. Well, thank you. For that invitation, I'm going to take you up on it, even though I forced it. Anytime. But I, I really appreciate you joining us today. It's been fantastic talking to you about food and about travel. So thank you, Gil. And now for the Wallen Wrap-Up. So great chatting with Gail today about so many places and experiences. And I'll tell you, just hearing her tell the stories and the, like, the passion that she has for food and for travel, for everything she does, it seems like you can see why she's been so successful in her career and, and why people love Top Chef so much. I personally loved hearing her very insightful take on Israel, where I went for the first time with my wife and youngest daughter. We went to visit our great friends who live there, the Daube family, and we traveled with them, which is you know always fantastic way to experience a country is to travel with locals. We went to Tel Aviv, to Jerusalem, to the far southern desert where we stayed at the beautiful new Six Senses Shaharut. We then went to the northern coast, the old city of Akko, where we dined at the famed Uriburi restaurant and had the unique pleasure of meeting its owner, Uri. Jeremiah's. I sat down with Uri at his nearby hotel, the Effendi, and asked him what makes Israel such an interesting destination today. What is so special in Israel in general is you have such a difference from the driest desert to the greenest green, to an area of the Western Galilee, which is like paradise with all the vegetables, fruits, cheese, wine, and just 40 kilometers radius from uh, like an hour, three quarters of an hour drive from Akko, you have more than 50 vineries and cheese and we have it all, you know. So food is one issue. History, I don't have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> A few places can yeah. do that. <laughs> it is only 70 years. But in these 70 years, different areas like desert have developed a little bit of a different culture than up in the north. So you can see what you have in the United States, differences between California and New York, and both of them are in the same direction, but if you take a Minnesota or yeah. <laughs> something like this, uh, you have huge differences. As I'm looking at, at Israel in general for tourists, it is the changes from place to place. The ability to find very special places, like have, have you seen Shacharut? Yes, I yeah. was just there. Yes, yeah. incredible. You know, you, you can see the differences between Akko and the Effendi and the desert and Shacharut. There are a lot of things in common. 
I was really impressed by the way Shacharut was built with a very low profile. From the air, you can't see because it matches so much the area. Within the house, it is the colors and everything is desert. And I like the idea of freely having something that is completely different that talks a language of the place. And my friend is talking the language of Akko in Akko's history. Shacharut is talking desert. Uh, you know, another thing, too, that stands out to me, the difference between the two, like, I mean, clearly physically, but also the, the sounds, right? So in Shaharut, there's no sound. It's, it's so silent. But what I love about here, too, is the sound, the call to prayer that you hear in the morning or in the evening and the, the sounds that go with culture. And then there, you don't have any sound. And it's a beautiful kind of contrast. And I will say one thing they both have in common is the best breakfasts in the world. <laughs> <laughs> the breakfast in Israel across the board are phenomenal, but Shaharut and Effendi stand out as, I, I just, we could just eat breakfast I, all day. I like simple food that is made out of good ingredients and is an experience. You don't need much more. Let's talk about Israeli food because you mentioned to me yesterday that what is Israeli food? And, you know, I've been traveling here for a week now. The food has been incredible. I mean, really one of the best food destinations in the world, but it's different in, in, in different regions and there's so much variety. That everybody who cooks in Israel makes actually, and with the influences from all over, one, someone who came from Morocco and is cooking the Moroccan spicy fish for uh, Friday, it will be Israeli food. You right, know? that's Israeli. And he makes the gefilte fish if he is from Poland, the origin, then it will be Israeli food, <laughs> right. you know? Everything that has to do with our history and with our open space for everybody is making it an Israeli food. Why did you choose Akko as, as the place for Uriburi and, and for the Effendi Hotel? What is it about Akko that makes it special? And then also from a, a food standpoint, why do you love this destination? First of all, it is a very colorful city. It is not Arab, it is not this, it is not that. It is a mix of people because of its position, its history, and everything else. It was the capital of the Crusaders for 100 years, 1191 to 1291. Akko is the safest natural harbor in this part of the Mediterranean. Akko has a clear, sweet water running into the city, very fertile area. The history proves that it had the ups and downs and different people ruled it, but it always was international because of this. I'd like to thank Gail Simmons and Uri Jeremias for joining us today on Travel That Matters. For more information on the places and destinations that we talked about today, please check out our show notes or visit kurtco.com backslash travel that matters. Travel That Matters is produced for Kurtco by A.J. Mosley. Marketing by Katrin Skipertis. Music by Joey Salvia. Hosted by me, Bruce Wallen. And I will see you down the road. Thank you.